Good morning, everyone, and welcome. My name is Minoush Shafiq, and I'm the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science. And welcome to the Shaw Library, which is the room that honors the founders of the LSE, the Fabians, uh, George and and, uh, Beatrice Webb and George Bernard Shaw. Uh, The school was founded in 1895 when London was the biggest metropolis in the world. And it was actually set up to study urban society and its many problems. In fact, one of the first projects the school did was to study the poverty in the slums in the surrounding neighbourhood. In 2019, cities could not be more important. And they are at the heart of the global social and environmental agenda. And in many ways, they've become the place where the greatest innovation and action has occurred on the policy front. And that's why I'm proud of the fact that cities, how they're planned, governed, and managed, are at the heart of LSE's educational and research agenda. And it is therefore incredibly fitting that today we are welcoming the leader of one of the world's greatest cities, Chicago. Rahm Emanuel is the 44th mayor of Chicago, elected in 2011, and many of us, of course, are well familiar with his impressive political track record. He served as the White House Chief of Staff under President Obama and served three terms in the U.S. House of Representatives, representing Chicago's 5th District. As mayor, he has made, led major investments in education, youth programming, neighborhood development, infrastructure, public health, public safety, and the fight against climate change. Over his tenure, Chicago's students have experienced record education gains, and there has been a marked progress in reducing Chicago's structural deficit. He'll cover some of these issues in his talk today, which is entitled The Role of Cities in the Global Economy. The talk will be moderated by Caroline Daniel, who is with Brunswick and has held senior editorial and correspondent positions with the Financial Times, including editor of the Weekend FT. I'm going to have to slip out uh, a little bit later, but I just wanted to give you some logistical uh, information for those who are using Twitter. Today's event is hashtag LSE Chicago, uh, and please put your phones on silent. We will record this event and hopefully make it available as a podcast subject to all the technicalities working. And there there will be, of course, uh, an opportunity for you to ask questions at the end of this session. So please join me in welcoming Ram Emanuel to the London School of Economics. We're delighted to have you. I want to thank you, and thank you for having me. It's great to speak at a school that wouldn't accept me as a student, so I'm honored. Uh, And listening to that introduction, you always wish your parents were here. One, so your mother would be proud and your father would be amazed. Uh, So let me start, and I do want to thank you, not for having me, but actually for your mission of helping uh, cities. Uh, And I say that because I'm very fortunate as a mayor of Chicago. The University of Chicago has a school on urban policy school on education, on public safety, et cetera, and it's very, very important to have an intellectual foundation that helps guides. I'll give you one illustration example. Uh, I I can't remember. It's six years ago. Uh, They had produced their school of public education, produced a report 
on our international baccalaureate schools, on high schools, versus we have uh, five, we have 10, but five prominent schools that you can get tested into. They're called selective enrollment high schools. Two to three of them are in the top 50 of the best high schools in the United States of America, public or private, according to U.S. News World Report. When I got the international the study, the study said that the IB was better than those five you could test into, and not only better, better, but by measure, not only high school graduation, but college acceptance, going to Ivy League school, and by 50% or 45%, kids of color getting to those schools and completing. So I asked my head of education, what are we doing? He goes, what do you mean? I said, well, they produced this report. What are we doing? Today, Chicago has the largest international baccalaureate program in the United States of America of any public school system. 38,000, basically 10% of our kids go to IB high schools and elementary schools. And so when schools like the London School of Economics take on urban issues or policy issues, they can be inspirations for uh, public policy decisions for those of us in government in that area. And so I want to thank you for, whether it starts in 1895 or more recent, being engaged in how cities uh, guide their life. Can you guys all hear me? Yes. Okay. That's not hard for a middle child, but in case I want to make sure in the back. So let me, let me give you uh, uh, my, my view of uh, both cities and their efforts right now in the kind of the um, moment in time. One of the things I'm working on is... I think we're all living in a period of time that we're going to look back at this as an inflection point where the nation state we grew up studying and understanding is beginning to recede and atrophy for a whole host of reasons. I can at least speak more comfortably about what's happening in the United States. And city-states or cities are emerging as city-states and doing things, as I leave here as an illustration, an example that tomorrow I'll be in Paris for a conference called the C40 Mayors on Climate Change. Things that used to be left to nation states, cities and mayors are picking up the mantle and running with and making policy decisions of their own. There's about 100, it could be 75, it could be 125, about 100 cities that run the economic, intellectual, and cultural energy of the world economy. The greater Chicago economy, metropolitan, is the 21st largest economy in the world. We could join the G20 if we wanted to. I don't want to go. I've seen the meetings. They're not that great. They're a lot boring. But you could, that's how big the metropolitan economy in Chicago is. And today, the city of Chicago, both through a series of things, is a major player in the way London, et cetera, works. When I first got elected, I asked McKinsey with Brookings Institute to do a study about the last 10 years and the next 10 years like to write a business plan, what worked, what didn't work, and what would be the guiding spirit to invest in. When they were working on it over the last 18 months, Economist Magazine, IBM, and A.T. Kearney all came out with studies comparative economically across cities across the globe. In every one of those studies, Chicago was rated the second most competitive economy in North America and either ninth, eighth, or seventh most competitive economy in the world. As you know, as the mayor of Chicago, I believe the one that concluded we were the seventh most competitive economy. <laughs> what I found fascinating about that was two or three things. One, that Chicago was the only city on the top ten list that was not either the financial or political capital of the respective country. So Berlin is on it, London is on it, New York is on it. 
and I'm happy not to have either the political or financial capital of the country in our city. So what made us that competitive? The other thing that they found was Chicago is the most diverse economy in the United States of America. No sector drives or produces more than 14% of our employment. And they isolated a number of factors, which I call the five T's. Talent, training, transportation, technology, and transparency. And if you focus on fundamentally investing in those, talent, in those five, Chicago will continue to be, and that's what McKinsey concluded, continue to prosper and be, rather than veer off to the bottom 50, would stay in the top 10 and be competitive going forward. Now, fast forward, as I come to the end of my tenure, for five consecutive years, Chicago is the number one city in America for corporate relocations every year for five years running. For six consecutive years, Chicago is the number one city in the United States for direct foreign investment. And it's the only, last year, it was London, Paris, Singapore, Amsterdam, Chicago. And if I asked you to pick which U.S. city would you put on the, would it be New York, San Francisco, Miami, Boston, but it's the capital of the heartland of America. And each of that was the final, and each year it progressively got better. And I think we can all conclude it was not because this is a winning, charming personality. <laughs> it got there because it focused on the five T's. So today, Chicago, 39% of the people in the city have a four-year college degree. New York is 37, LA is 33, Houston and Philadelphia are 32. Not that I'm competitive, but I really think it's important you know that. <laughs> Second, Chicago has more universities than any other city but Boston. Within a 100 to 200 mile radius, Chicago has more level one research universities than any other city in the globe. And more graduates leave Wisconsin, Michigan, Indiana, and those big 10 universities and research and come to Chicago to start their career. That talent pool drives Chicago's economic growth. Of the 17 universities in the city of Chicago and colleges, seven of them are research centers. I meet every quarter with every president of the universities on their research and where they're going to make their capital investment for new research. In the next five years, 6,000 more students will be added to Chicago's universities in the computer science and engineering. Second, training. Now this I want to come back to later. Hopefully our questions will get to. But our training, and I'm very proud of the fact, is the city of Chicago is we now offer that if you get a B average in our public high schools, our community colleges, technical school, the two-year schools, free. First city to do it. And if you keep the B average in our technical schools for two years, every university and college in the city of Chicago will give you 20 to 40% off of tuition. So kids are graduating college in Chicago, a lot of them, debt-free. And in the United States, I know that's not the total issue here, but that's a big issue in the United States, where the average debt is $40,000 when you come out with a BA. And we can now insure people, and 81% of the kids that take the Chicago Star Scholarship, which is the B-free community college, 81% are the first ones in their family ever to go to college. And if income inequality is the driving factor of our cities and our economies and our politics. Bridging the income gap is really an educational gap, and 81% of our kids now are bridging that gap, and we're building that bridge. Third, 
And each one of those community colleges is geared towards a sector of the economy in Chicago, the fastest producing parts of our jobs, healthcare, transportation, logistics, IT, professional services, culinary, hospitality, and advanced digital manufacturing. Third, transportation. Chicago O'Hare Airport was just rated the best connected airport in the United States, second to Heathrow in the world. It's the only airport in the United States that flies to all continents. It was also rated the busiest. Rather than rest on our laurels, by 2020, we'll have all eight runways up and running, and I know you are working on your third one here in Heathrow. <laughs> We're going from four and a half to seven and a half million square feet of terminal space. We're building the only Global Alliance terminal in all of the United States. We're adding 25 gates and have the capacity to add 25 gates every decade for the next four. So we're not resting on our position, we're investing in the future. Chicago is the only city in the United States that American United and Southwest have their major operations. There is nowhere in the world, nowhere in the United States, you cannot get to multiple times a day, weather permitting. And that's something that climate change will deal with. <laughs> but that, if you're a global city with corporate reach and you want to bring the world to your city and your city to the world, you need an international aviation system. Second is a public transportation system, and earlier we were discussing, I take our train to work three times a week. Our on-time arrival is 97%. Our satisfaction rate is 91%. By the time I leave office, about half the track will be new. About 40% or 40-some-odd stations will be totally new or totally rebuilt. Our Chicago tra transportation system has a coffee book of art of all the stations, so we put art in all our stations. We're the first city to have 4G on the system because the train is a new office. You can't just wait to get to work to start work and also leaving. And the rail car next month will open up the first new rail car factory in Chicago since 1983. By the time I leave office of the 4,500 miles of road, 2,200 miles will have been repaved in the last eight years. And we've gone from the 10th to the number one, now back to fourth, best bike city in the United States. So all modes of transportation have been modernized for the future. Fourth, investing in technology. I'm gonna rush through this because I know we have to get to the Q&A, or as Henry Kissinger said, does anybody have any questions for my answers? And we can go from there. <laughs> But the fourth is investing in technology and bringing that up as a new sector of the economy. And then fifth is giving people confidence in the public sector. In a world of uncertainty, companies of all sizes are looking for certainty. And when you take it all together, from talent to training to transportation to technology to transparency, what does Chicago offer in a world of uncertainty? Is certainty around the most important things for long-term investments. Nobody wants to move headquarters or operations or expansion into a place that they're not sure of. And that's where the public sector plays an important role to the private sector's confidence to make investment. Lastly, as a city, when, you know, if you got 10 mayors together and we all started talking over dinner, and we all tell you why our city's the best, in fact, your mayor, Khan, and I often tease each other about it. We're very competitive in a good and friendly way. The most important way is to bridge the difference to make sure that while you guys are all fortunate, as I am, we went to good schools, that will give you the passport to navigate the world in the future. But for London to succeed in the future, 
While Brexit is a big issue, and I understand that, for Chicago, and I'll relate it to my city, I have to make sure that those, every element of our city has a chance at the future that we're building in Chicago. And if more and more people feel like that future is for others but not them, we will never be the city we can be. And whether it's in our elementary schools, our community colleges, a mayor in Chicago controls and influences that decision both by the boards they appoint and the chancellor. The most important thing we can do is what I call inclusive economic growth. The best place I know how to do that is not, there's two places, the love of a parent and a good education. A mayor can only take care of one and I'm working on the other one personally at home. <laughs> but I say that because one of the things I'm most proud of as mayor, when I became mayor, the city of Chicago had the shortest school day and the shortest school year in the United States of America. It's very hard to compete to be dead last, but we figured it out. Our educational day was five hours and 45 minutes. I took a strike, but we added an hour and 15 minutes to every day and two weeks to every year of a child's education. Then I added full day kindergarten, and we're in the process now of implementing over four years full day universal pre-K for every child. Altogether, Chicago added four years of educational time to a child's education. It's the largest increase in educational time anywhere in the United States ever. And if you ask me, because I sometimes joke, I started this job 6'2 and 250 pounds, and I'm now 5'8 and 148 dripping wet. But the place I put the most emphasis was to give children a chance at an through an education at a future we're building in the city of Chicago. And I don't know where else you put that emphasis. If you want to make sure that if we don't, I actually believe this, we don't have a person to waste in our city. The place you can change the trajectory of a child if it's not home is at school. I just recently wrote a piece in The Atlantic about education, of which I said there's four things I learned that I didn't know until I became mayor. One, it's not about the teacher. It's about the school principal. They chart the course in that school. And too much emphasis is put on one person to deal with a lot of other economic, cultural, social, family dysfunction when, it, in fact, it's the principal who creates that culture of accountability. Two, at least in our state, not here, the big debate is between charter schools versus traditional neighborhood schools. It's a stupid debate. It's about quality versus mediocrity, not about brand. I have expanded charters, and I've closed charters. I've expanded neighborhoods, and I've closed neighborhood schools, all driven by who's accomplishing the best education to make sure that our kids are competitive for the future, especially in a period of time where you earn what you learn. Third, high school is not about graduation. It's about preparing kids for what's next in their education. It's not a miles, it's not a destination, it's a milestone. This year, 50% of the kids graduating from high school in Chicago will have college credit before they graduate. Next year will be the first school system in the United States that to get your high school diploma, we will work with you, but you have to produce a letter of acceptance from either college, community college, a branch of the armed forces, or a vocational trade school. Every child, not just my children, and not just Andy Zopp's child, will have a post-high school education plan to walk out the door. And then fourth, 
20% of a child's life is in the school. 80% of a child's life is outside the school. If you want them to succeed on the 20%, invest in the other 80%. So today, Chicago went from 14,000 kids in summer jobs to 33,000 kids in summer jobs. And to get a summer job, you sign a pledge that you will go to college. Every library in our city, 82 of them, has a tutor from three to six after school to help kids on homework. My kids need help, we can figure out how to do it, Amy and I. Not, that's not true in a city with 140 languages spoken at the public schools. In the summer when we have camp through our park district, we do a half hour reading every day. Why? So we can deal with the summer slide. At our libraries, we have a thing in the summer called ROMS Readers. 110,000 kids read during the summer so they don't slide back academically. And if they read, we give them books to take home. So every aspect of the city is used to reinforce the other 20% so we all drive what we do collectively with our own children because the children of Chicago are our children. And if you're going to end in the day of dealing with income and social inequality, the biggest place you can make a difference in the public sector is in the educational system. And if you don't invest in it, you can't do that. And to me, the driving factor today of great metropolises, world-class global cities, is how to ensure that not just a section of that city is succeeding, but everybody in that city has a chance to succeed at the success of that city. Institutions like the London School of Economics, the University of Chicago, Northwestern, DePaul, UIC, are all doing important social work on helping us think through the public policy questions, challenges, and opportunities to make sure that we don't have a person to waste. I want to thank you for having me. Look forward to your questions. So I think we can all understand why um, uh, Mayor Emanuel has been elected twice in Chicago and is six for naught in his um, um, political elections. Um, what I'd like to start with, I actually spent three years living in Chicago, so um, um, alas for Ram, I know We, we call that a voter. <laughs> I think that's called, that's called Chicago voting because I'm yeah. actually based here, but there we go. Um, what I'd love to start with is a sense of um, your um, understanding of political power. You've obviously experienced political power in all sorts of different ways in Washington and as a mayor of Chicago. And last night I was fascinated when you said that um, running Chicago is like running a 19 billion pound, 19 billion dollar company, but also it's a more agile version of a company. I'd love you to just sort of unpack for me the differences in sort of governing between the kind of tools you have available as a mayor and the tools you had available in Washington. Well, everybody get dinner. We're going to be here a while. Uh, so now... I don't know about, I know that the mayor of London is a recent phenomenon. Chicago is unique. So the mayor of Chicago, and it's not unique because I think I'm unique. It's unique. The office is unique. The mayor of the city of Chicago appoints the head of the schools, the head of the community colleges, the head of public housing, the head of the public libraries, the head of the public housing, public transportation, police, fire, airport, and basic neighborhood services like garbage pickup, recycling. So it's a very, very um, influential position. A lot of other school districts are elected. New York mayor doesn't control the mass transit system. In Chicago, they do. So that gives you variation on that. Um, now, I would actually, I want to deviate for one second. I'll come back to that premise. I actually think 
you know, I learned this from President Clinton. You know, the influence of power is about how you, not that you accumulate it, but how you apply it and where you use it. You can't use it in every place equally. A lot of, tar of journalists is, why did you do this or why did you do that? You know, a, a mayor, as I, used to, as I say at our office when we're usually developing the budget or making a tough decision, is what's the pain to pleasure? Meaning, and I'm using a sports metaphor also, uh, since that didn't go over well with you guys not understanding that, uh, <laughs> is you can't swing at every pitch. So I've reserved or use or apply what resources, political capital I have for the schools. There are other things we've done that are challenging and difficult, but you basically, like, what is the benefit that you're going to get? And I'll give you one anecdote or example. When I decided that we were going to extend the day an hour and 15 minutes and do universal kindergarten, uh, we took a seven-day teacher strike, and there hadn't been a strike in Chicago in 30 years. And every day for that strike, between the front door of my home and the car, was about the longest 30 feet of my life because there were 300 uninvited guests who gave me their personal opinion of me. Uh, so it was about the third day of the strike and I'm about to walk out the front door and I'm kind of bracing myself for this kind of 30 day walk, 30 feet walk. And my wife Amy says, as I'm about to go out, you know, she says, I've seen you through an impeachment I've seen you through health care. I've seen you through the assault weapon ban. I've seen you through the crime bill. I've seen you through the worst financial scandal. I've never seen you calmer in a crisis. And I looked at her and I said, and you can hear the chants through the door, and they're not good chants, so let me break that news. I said, I've never felt more right about what I was doing. And so part of knowing, uh, and then you'd open the door and then you're greeted, <laughs> uh, but part of power and using it is to know, are you willing to go through both personal and otherwise political pain to get something that you think materially can make a difference? In the end of the day, I mean, I think that hour and 15 minutes in full day kindergarten for every child, not some children, was worth the political cost. And I... I mean, it was political, not just personal, it was political cost to taking a strike. But I made a pledge in the campaign, as I said frequently, Chicago has the shortest school day and the shortest school year, and a child in Houston gets two and a half more years of education than a child in Chicago. And if you really do believe in education, which I know what it's done for me and I know what it's doing for my children, I didn't think we should uh, have our children in Chicago cheated every day because it was easier on me politically to leave it in place. Um, that's not true about every decision. And you've got to calculate power, and it's not just a static thing, where you use it, where you spend it. Sometimes you accumulate. Sometimes you just deplete it. Um, Post-Vietnam, Democrats have been allergic to power as a party. We are. And what President Clinton... allergic now. It's still in our DNA. What President Clinton showed me and really taught me, and President Obama, and I'm lucky to have studied with them and studied under them, is... Power is not a bad thing. It's what you do with it that will define whether it's good or bad on a moral term and plane. And when I walk, when I, I will, in three months from today, walk out the office of mayor, um, I know the difference between four, hours of four years of additional education time versus not. We used to have a school system that half the kids had a full-day kindergarten 
and the other half had a half day. And if you looked at the map of where it was, the kids that were getting a full day kindergarten probably could have afforded a half day, and the kids that were getting a half day desperately needed a full day. And it was based on whether parents advocated, not whether a child needed it. And so to me, those are political battles worth taking on. And I also I used to say at the table when we were negotiating, what are we arguing about? We're arguing about whether a five-year-old gets a full day of school? This is crazy. But we were arguing about it. So let's look um, at something you touched on in your, in your talk about the, the role of mayors at a time of dysfunction at the national state level yeah. and how it's obviously evolving incredibly fast. And you, you know, your point about the 100 mayors who basically run the world is a pretty interesting moment in time. Um, so one thing I've been fascinated by is, is Chicago's been looking to develop its own foreign, foreign policy. So <laughs> six years ago, the Chicago Council on, yeah. on Foreign Relations started to talk about the idea of a foreign policy. It seemed like madness at the time. Now it seems conventional wisdom to talk about cities having foreign policy. You've been extremely active in coming up with new ways of sub-national level um, trade deals with China, for example, and with Mexico. So mm -hmm. I'd love for you to sort of talk through why it matters for cities to have a foreign policy and then I want to come back to questions about um, dealing with China. <laughs> uh, well, here's the thing. Whether it's climate change, immigration, economic opportunity, things that used to be left to the nation state are devolving, in a way, to cities. And I will make a prediction. I may get yelled at here. That if you end up with either a hard, soft Brexit London will figure out how to navigate its way to a different type of decisions than waiting for the national government to do it, because you will have to. You don't have a choice, because that's essential for your own economic future of a, this city. Now, um, I think on, we, three years ago, brought 78 mayors from around, mainly Canada, United States, Mexico, but the mayor of Paris was there, the mayor of, of other cities across the globe, to sign the Chicago Climate Charter. It was a customized plan for every city. Our plan was different than Paris's, different than Vancouver's, different than Aurora, um, Colorado. And it was a customized plan, and we had to do that because we understand as cities we're not only supposed to lead, but there was decisions, things that were happening in the climate that would affect us. We just went through the city two weeks ago our temperatures was 45 below zero, and two days later it was 45 degrees above. It was a 90 degree swing in 48 hours. And if you have to have plans for resiliency, I cannot wait for the national government to decide to stick with Paris and how it's going to make those decisions. We have to do these things. Today, Chicago is the largest retrofit program for um, commercial buildings and public buildings, 53 million square feet under retrofit, we have reduced our greenhouse gas emissions by 14% and seen our economy over the same period of time grow, I'm doing this directionally, I'll probably may get it wrong, but by about 14 to 15%, proving that you can do that. I closed two coal plants that operated in the city, and I didn't check it out with the National Department of Energy. And that's it. Now, every library has a citizenship corner helping people become citizens. It's our own immigration policy to help people that come to America, come to Chicago, become citizens. But if lots of mayors are coming up with their own sort of really important areas of policy, yeah. which used to be national policy, so in areas like climate change or immigration policy, how far is that just going to create more dysfunction in, in terms of how America rules itself? Well, look, I mean, it's, 
you know, here's what I, let me say this. 50 years ago, I mean, Lyndon Johnson infamously said, whenever I think I'm having a bad day, I say, thank God I'm not a mayor. <laughs> 50 years ago, American cities were on fire. Today, mayors show up in Washington and say, let us help you save yourself. And the fact is, I would prefer a national government as a partner. But I, as a mayor, and this is not just Rahm, this is true of Mayor de Blasio, Mayor Garcetti, Mayor Hancock, uh, Mayor Walsh, we don't have the option, given our constituents, to wait. We don't have that option. It's not, a, it's not a, like multiple choice, act, don't act, sit by the sidelines and see what you should do. So we have to act, and it's a requirement. I would prefer a federal partner. I'll give you one example I'm very proud of. The city of Chicago in the summer provides, used to provide 14,000 youth, high school kids, summer jobs. Lifeguard at our par park, camp counselor at our park district, lifeguard at our beaches, different things. We've grown it over the years to 33,000 kids. The federal government and the state government in that period of time basically now pays for maybe six to 800 of those kids. Now, could I say, hey, look, we used to work with the federal government and they're not helping us, so forget it? Or do I try to help kids in their future? I don't have the option of waiting. And so you have to make certain decisions. Now, would I prefer the federal government to do what they've historically done, which is about four to 5,000 kids? Yes. But I don't think I, as mayor, taking the responsibility of the oath of office, have the ability to say, well, that's just the federal government's role and until they come up with the cash. It would be easier politics for me to yell at the federal government for failing rather than the hard politics of finding every year the dollars for 2,000, 3,000 more kids to be added to the system. Um, going back. Can I do one thing on economics that I avoided? So I may, what you're going to say on economics. Okay. Well, the you, it was macroeconomic <laughs> talk. Well, I decided we wanted to uh, bring investment into the, into the city, foreign investment. So we signed a unique agreement between the city of Chicago and the eight largest cities in China. It's kind of like a sister city program on steroids, for lack of a better way of describing it. And Chicago has been a leader in Chinese investment. The rail car factory I talked to you about that we're going to open up is Chinese funded. And so I'm pro-investment. Now, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 40 years ago, there is no way the mayor of the city of Chicago would have had their own economic investment strategy for a Chinese company to come to Chicago. But today, you have to do it. And if you don't know how to do it, you're not going to succeed. So we talked last night about China, and um, I'd be fascinated to hear about, both about what's it like to negotiate with China, <laughs> and at a time when there's rising China concerns, um, you also said last night about, um, you know, they are in it for themselves in terms of being a dominant power. They have a long-term agenda, which is a national agenda. So I'd be interested in, in how you, as a mayor, balance those demands between courting China and then the dangers of it. Well, let me do, I have two hats. So one is, it was right to bring China into the WTO as a developing country, but when you the, become the second largest economy, you're no longer developing, you're developed. And that should trigger a different set of responsibilities. And if Chinese wasn't really to play like that, you have to deal with it differently. Uh, I'm on foreign soil. I don't think the President of the United States is wrong about the role, the risk associated with China. And you have to have them in a rules-based system. The truth is they're not operating by full rules. Now, as a negotiator for the city of Chicago, 
the, one of the largest real estate deals, uh, developments rather, led by the Wanda Group in the United States is happening in Chicago. The rail factory that I talked about is CRRC, is Chinese-based. So all those are correct to and welcome. You just have to know what your self-interest is and be willing to negotiate. It's tough. And here's the one rule I've always had about uh, negotiating, two rules, actually. One, be upfront about what your bottom lines are. And if they're not met, you're not going to negotiate. You're not going to. And be willing to accept no. I used to tell President Clinton all the time, you want to get to a yes? Be willing to take no as an answer. And if they know you are willing to say no to a deal, you're more likely to get to a yes than to a no. Have you had any fallout from dealing with China? Um, have I had any fallout? I feel bad saying I don't think I have, but I'm going to want to reserve the right somewhere in this interview to say yes and I'll, when I think about it. But no, I don't think so. Um, let's come to tech companies. Okay. Obviously, there's a lot of fascination both. So power is moving to cities, and also mm-hmm. there's a lot of concern about power moving to the big tech companies. Um, obviously, under your uh, mayorship, the uh, um, Chicago has done extremely well by courting tech companies. Google's just moved a lot of jobs there. And you're um, playing havoc with the Amazon decision to not um, have the headquarters in New York right now. I'd be really interested in the balance between how do you, how much money should you give up as a city to encourage companies like mm-hmm. Amazon to come and put their headquarters? Mm-hmm. And can you just unpack the deal for us about how you would have treated it if you'd been in New York? What right. should they have done? Let me start with uh, the question I want to answer. Uh, <laughs> and then I'll go back to the question uh, yeah, again. Yeah, and so. then we'll go back to your question. Let's go to my question uh, for my answer. Uh, and I, see, here's, I actually have said this publicly. This is I, your Kissinger moment. Yeah. Uh, Here's what I, first of all, the major and minor tech companies out in the Valley in Seattle. I think the days of the Seattle and the Valley are over. They have a great ecosystem, et cetera, et cetera. But they're way too expensive, both labor and cost of living. Everybody working there is miserable. They have to live two hours away and pay for like 500 square feet and pay the equivalent of what somebody else would be paying for a full home. And they can't keep workers long enough, they can't hold them long enough, and they, have to, and they spend about an hour and a half on average in transportation. The future for tech is gonna be in Chicago, Atlanta, Dallas, Denver, because they have the university systems and the quality of life. Now my general rule about cities is the successful cities going forward are gonna be the ones that can balance live, work, and play. Not totally balanced, meaning a third or third or third, but balanced in the sense that that's, they have the, all the makeup of a successful global city. Now, I think that the reason there's uh, ServiceNow moved the uh, major research development out of the valley to Chicago is you can get the same quality t- talent in Chicago, and people actually can enjoy working there rather than being miserable. One, 12% of all computer science engineers trained in the United States come out of Illinois. 45% of Microsoft's R&D staff is University of Illinois trained. We've been exporting, supporting talent for a long time. Now I want to keep them. And so, we, so a lot of technology companies are moving second research and development facilities, other type of facilities to Chicago. It's centrally located, same tech talent, a lot happier at a better cost of living. When I go to the Valley to recruit companies, 
I don't bring everything I told you about talent and all that. I bring Zillow. This is what an apartment in San Francisco costs. This is what an apartment in Chicago costs. I just bring real estate deals because, I, well, you laugh, but you have workers in a bus that's driving two hours from one part of the city to another. It's an amazing difference in workforce and capacity. And those companies, so I would start there. Second is, we have done five years, number one city for corporate relocations and six for direct foreign investment. People are searching for the certainties around the five T's that I've talked about. In an uncertain world, Google could have picked any city for their finance, second home for their finance division, any city. And what they chose was a series of things that would give them certainty for this decision of risk. They don't want to make another decision like this three years from now. This is it for a while. That's going to be true for tech companies and also all other companies. And I think that what I say to certain companies is don't ask for a public subsidy because if I give you a public subsidy, let's, here's the rule. What if we had a corporate tax, which we don't, I eliminated the head tax in Chicago. What if we had one? I would say, okay, you get no corporate tax, but you can't hire out of Booth, Kellogg, or the University of Illinois, just to name three schools. Which is more important, the subsidy or access to talent? Which is more important, having you get subsidies for here or the ability to get anywhere to a client or a client to you out of O'Hare and the certainty around that? So when you think about what the core decisions a board, a CEO, and the senior management have to make to either expand or relocate, the fundamental certainty around talent and around transportation about the training institutions for that talent are more relevant to a company's decision over the next horizon than whether they got a subsidy. Now, you and I have discussed this. The Foxconn was given $3 billion, and they're already trying to renegotiate for a whole host of reasons. The president championed, in, when he was president-elect, the carrier deal, and it didn't turn out. Apple made a decision to go to Austin, Texas, which has a transportation housing problem, and nobody screamed. A um, Amazon decided to go to Northern Virginia that has a transportation problem, and there doesn't seem to be the backlash. I've said this publicly, so I'll repeat it. Had they gone into New York and said, we know there's a challenge on mass transit. Don't give us particularly the subsidy, but use those dollars to fix in and around Queen, uh, Long Island City the train station and the rail that link all of us neighborhood and to the airport. They would have been given a ticker tape parade because they would have been seen as making. Remember, three weeks before they decided to pull out, the governor of New York was saying, I'm thinking about raising rates on the MTA by 30%. Everybody knows in New York, unless they haven't had access to the internet, that you have a mass transit problem. And, you, and everybody knows that they can't figure out where to find the money to fix a $60 billion deficit. But out of nowhere, here's $5 billion. People, they may not have gone to the London School of Economics to get their degree, but they can figure out that doesn't add up. And had they gone in and said, we don't want the money. Now, we want the dollars specifically spent right here. They would have been treated like a winner. Okay, so, so you love politics. You've been in politics most of your life. 
Um, so my final question, I have many more questions and they want to open up to... I have many more answers. Brilliant. Okay. Um, we have lots of time. Okay. Um, and you just spilt some water. Yeah. Sorry for that. It's um, not your fault. It's my fault. The next question, you're obviously nervous about my next question. Mm -hmm. uh, the question is about, uh, given your love of politics and your love of being mayor mm -hmm. and the power you have as mayor, mm -hmm. why would you decide not to run for a third term? So I could come here. And answer your question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to register at the London School of no, Economics. No, as a no, student? no. So here's it's very. There's a lot. There's not one answer. There's a couple. One is, uh, at one level, Amy and I, this year became empty nesters. All three kids are in college. I've been in politics 24 years, from Clinton through Congress to Obama and mayor. And there's a lot of things you ask of your family. Uh, that you put off things that you say we can't do now because of the job or responsibility. And Amy and I are young enough to still do certain things that I think I would like to do. Hopefully she'll still want to do them with me, but I would like to do them. The second thing is, and this is honest, is also now there was a year and a half break between Clinton and Congress, but basically 24 straight years, the last 16 consecutively. And so if you look at it, I got elected in 02. By 2004, I was asked to chair the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee to take over the House. Two years later, we won that back. That two years, I became caucus chair, 2006. 2008, I became chief of staff to President Obama. Early 2011, I became mayor. The last 10 years, I think you would agree that when President Clinton, Obama became, chief, uh, became president, and I became mayor of the city of Chicago two years later, the last 10 years have been big turnarounds. I'm tired. I, I am, it has taken a lot out of me. And um, I had about a year and a half of energy, and I owed the voters the honesty that I didn't have four full years. They didn't elect me for a year and a half. They elected me for four, four years every day to come into that office with the same verve, same energy, same, and I did not have it in my gas tank. And I love, as you probably can tell, uh, this job. I love the people of the city of Chicago, and I love the city uh, that gave my grandfather, when he came to Chicago, a chance to succeed with a fifth grade education. But I did not have it uh, uh, in me. I'll stay, I'm gonna live in Chicago. And I basically decided I need to take a rest, recharge my batteries, and also I need some time I think you would agree, especially here in England, given what you're dealing with, what we're dealing with in America, I need some time having practiced politics the last 20 years. What did we get right? What did we get wrong? And what led to this moment that looks like at least both of our countries are going through a crack up? And I need some time to think about that because whatever I thought was right may not be right. And if it was right, what did we get right? What did we get wrong? And how do we address it? And I'll come back to public life because I clearly enjoy it but I'll come back with the energy and verve that uh, public service requires. Great, thank you very much. I should say that one of um, Ram's ideas of actually having a break is going on a thousand mile um, bicycle ride, uh, which he's gonna be doing shortly. Um, what I'm, wait, I, <laughs> a friend of mine, the next day, we're gonna bike counterclockwise all the entire circumference of Lake Michigan. It's always been something I've wanted to do, I haven't been able to do it for a host of reasons. And so day one, 
I'm getting on a bike and we're going to see how hard my ass is. <laughs> um, we have time for a few questions. I'm going to take them in a group of three. So um, if I can go for um, um, uh, one over there in the front row, um, in purple. Um, a very um, a, sh- a hand right at the back. I can just see it like a, a kind of almost an American flag um, <laughs> kind of um, arm on the right-hand side. And then in the middle at the back. I'm sorry, I can't. If you put your hand back up again, yes, the lady in the um, um, yeah. Could everybody so just? So we're going to start over here. We're going to take. If you can make sure it's a question, not a speech. Just give, fantastic. Give me your name. That's it. Say who you are. So we'll take three quick questions, and then Ron will. We have only got about ten minutes, so I okay. have to give very quick answers. So first. No. <laughs> um, hi there. <laughs> My name's Adila. I'm a journalist at the Thomson Reuters Foundation. Um, the question is: You're talking about education, really improving inclusivity amongst young people but how does that translate to adults with problems like gentrification which are massive in cities like London or Chicago thank you very much and um, have you got that question I think so yes. I got um, my answer and then the uh, question at the back in the right hand side yes it's uh, Amy LeMay Night Czar of London and uh, very inspired by uh, you saying successful cities of the future need to balance work rest and play and just wondering uh, what your thoughts are on the city at night, and might we see Chicago develop uh, a night mayor or night czar role like we have here in London? Because I'd like a colleague in Chicago. Thanks. All right. Thank you. And then um, in the middle. Hi. Um, I'm just interested to know... Can you say ha- who you are, please? Oh, sorry. I'm Sabrina. I work here at LSE. I'm interested to know what's happening on the south side of Chicago and the gang violence. Okay. All right, so we have education, nightmares, nightmares, sorry. Nights are. Um, Nights, I heard nights are. Okay, okay. Real. And, uh, and then the uh, question about... Uh, Adult, okay. I'll be, because I want to be respectful of everybody. On a, here's my view. Education is, is lifetime learning. It's no longer kindergarten to high school. It's pre-K to college. And you've got to push the boundaries out um, and the capacity. About 40% of the people that go to our community colleges are in the workplace skilling up to another level. And you're going to have to retool educational system, whether it's online, et cetera, to do that. Two, it's interesting you asked on nightlife or nights are. Uh, when I first became mayor, I, I commissioned my cultural affairs director to rewrite the cultural plan for the city of Chicago to take culture into the neighborhoods. I mean, that's what came back from, we did a series of charrettes around. Uh, So today at our parks, we have called Night Out in the Park in the Summer. It's totally free. You can see Shakespeare in the park, movies in the park, music from different cultures, dance from different cultures, and it's taking culture all out. We just launched, now we know you think you're famous for theater, like New York, but Chicago is famous for uh, uh, what we call the storefront theater little neighborhood theaters, of course. We have over 200 and some. So we're launching, and I'm putting about $10 million of advertising across the globe on the uh, storefront theater and improv to bring people to the city of Chicago to enjoy what I have. You know, Steppenwolf Theater, which is famous in Chicago, Goodman, Shakespeare, Court Theater, Looking Glass, all started as storefront and then emerged to real serious international players, a Tony Award winning. And so we're going to basically fund and publicly sponsor new writing and new material from the public for our storefront theaters, not for our big institutions. And of the hour and 15 minute I added in school, 
85% of all kids today in the city of Chicago get an hour and 40 minutes of arts education a week. Uh, as a former ballet dancer that had a scholarship to the Joffrey Ballet School, I'm a fundamental believer in dance and culture. Do you still dance? Uh, yes, politically I do every day. <laughs> uh, uh, no, I do a lot of yoga. To your uh, question about public safety and thank you. So the last two years, Chicago's experienced a 30% decline in uh, violence. January was our lowest month in 10, lowest January in 10 years of violence. And 20 year lows in both robbery, burglaries, kind of property theft. Superintendent Johnson and the leadership of the police department are doing a fabulous job of changing the culture of a police department, making it professional and proactive while fundamentally also reducing violence. And anybody that makes major changes in a public institute or private, changing a culture while not losing focus on what you're doing, not easy. The other thing which is very, very important on, that you said on the south side. So I think the last 30 years, at least in the United States, the idea of investing in a neighborhood has been about housing. But housing without a grocery store is an island. Housing without a train station that gets you from home to work is an island. And so what we're doing is what I call community building. We put out in two weeks, I made the issue of a food desert in Chicago a big issue. We had about 450,000 people that did not have a, within a mile access to fresh fruits, vegetables, and food and meats. There's some big, strong, symbolic examples, but we've basically reduced the food desert population, low-end 25, high-end 40%. In about three weeks in Woodlawn, which is just southwest of um, Hyde Park and the University of Chicago, I'll open up the first grocery store in 50 years. Why? We put new housing, rebuilt the train station, put a new park district facility, a new school, and then the private sector had confidence to come in and put a grocery store, and there's adding another 50,000 square feet of coffee shops, restaurants, all the things. They were not going to come unless all these other things. So don't build housing, build neighborhoods. What that's done is to reduce crime in Woodlawn and increase the population in Woodlawn. We've done that in uh, Bronzeville. We've done that in Washington Park. We've done that in Pullman. A big study that just came out about Pullman reduced crime, and we added about 1,500 jobs in the neighborhood, expanded Gwendolyn Brooks School. We've done a series of other things, Poe Elementary there, but building neighborhoods, not building housing, building the things that only the public sector, if you want to see a neighborhood succeed, public safety, public parks, public schools, public transportation, public libraries, and then Residents and retail will have the confidence to come there. And, that, and I will also say, find yourself a superintendent of the police department with a leadership team that actually uh, know how to build professional, proactive officers. They're part of it, but not the whole investment. One of the things I'm most proud about, besides our summer jobs and other things, is, and I'll give an anecdote of this, and I apologize for taking longer, we had zero kids in mentoring. Today, in our most challenging neighborhoods, we have 8,000 young men from seventh grade to sophomore year of high school 
have a mentor four hours a day, five days a week, nine months a year. So University of Chicago, crime lab, exposed me at Harper High School to a program. It was called BAM, Becoming a Man. About a year later, uh, when President Obama was coming in, I asked him if he would go to it. He said, I, I, you need it, I don't need it. I said, okay, you almost ruined my family life. I had to move everybody to Washington. I have like a buck in the, ca in the account with you. I wanna take 25 cents out. So Mr. Always on Time, supposed to be there only 20 minutes. He's upstairs for an hour and a half. When he launches My Brother's Keeper, which is his foundation I'm mentoring, the young man, Christian, who sat next to him in that Hyde Park High School is the one that introduced him at the White House. And it transformed him. Bill Gates, who dropped his kid off at school this September, I asked him to sit through it. And his wife just said in an interview in the Tribune, he said he came home crying, couldn't talk about it. It was the most important thing that he had done in the last 10 years in seeing this. And to me, that is one of the biggest things we've done to also change the safety trajectory of our city is not just our police department, but give young men the chance to believe in themselves again. Um, I think I want to just reframe the acronym BAM for becoming a mayor instead. No, and, uh, no. There's and two programs. I'm afraid we're out of time. I'm really sorry that we, I'm sure we had many more questions in the room. Okay. Um, what's been remarkable is to have an over an hour with Rahm Emanuel and not mention Brexit or Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't given them the chance. I think we're all the better for it. Um, please join me in thanking Mayor Rahm Emanuel.